This week, Will Lin from ForgePoint Capital is with us to discuss security market trends. Then James Norrie from CyberCon IQ joins us to talk about addressing the human element in security. Finally, in the enterprise security news, Sentinel One and CrowdStrike reinvest in the security market. Malwarebytes raises $100 million. Ox Security raises a $34 million seed round. Jamf acquires Zec Ops. New startups looking to improve code reviews, outsourcing questionnaires, and providing consumer privacy awareness. Uh, federal security funding for state and local governments. New software supply chain attacks. Microsoft Windows slaps your hand when you try to update passwords.txt. And stick around until the end when we talk about a New Jersey deli with a $100 million market cap. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. Companies, big and small, are using AwareGo's Human Risk Assessment to measure the human risk factor in cybersecurity. This interactive solution allows companies to measure employees' knowledge and behavior across threat vectors such as phishing, passwords, sensitive data, and more. After completing the assessment, CISOs can identify vulnerable departments and roles and improve internal policies or procedures. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash awarego to start your free trial. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy National Coffee Day. This is episode 290, recorded on Thursday, September 29th, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me today is the czar of zero trust, the captain of content, Katie Teitler. How are you, Katie? I'm well. I could use another cup of coffee. How do you take your coffee, Adrian? Black. Like your soul. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a simple guy when it comes to uh, drip coffee, I guess. But uh, I also do espresso and uh, espresso drinks. No pumpkin like latte a plain, for you? Nah, plain latte if I do a latte. Yeah, I don't, I don't get crazy with it. <laughs> Alas. Also joining me is the Herald of Hacking, the captain of crypto, Mr. Tyler Robinson. How are you, Tyler? I am fantastic. I think uh, National Coffee Day is kind of redundant. That's pretty much every day for most people. In fact, that is true. today would that is be different true. if I put another coffee inside of my other coffee with a shot of coffee. That may be 
National Coffee Day. And that's like a uh, there's different names for that. Uh, shot, shot in the, the dark. Uh, a red eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can get coffee inside your coffee. That is a thing. Finally, we have a third co-host with us today, Sean Metcalf. How are you, Sean? Hi, Adrian. Doing well, thank you. And yourself? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Uh, I apologize. You're uh, a bit of a late addition, so I don't have a fancy intro for you yet. I have to oh, no get to worries. know you better <laughs> to come up with a fancy <laughs> intro. Fair enough. You always have to earn a title, right? Right. <laughs> All right. Quick announcement here. Uh, don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. And we are going to jump right into our first interview. Uh, today, we're excited to have Will Lin uh, with us again uh, to, to discuss the, the market, the security market. Always fun to have these uh, segments, to have a VC on here, get that perspective. And uh, Will Lin is the Managing Director, Co-Founder of ForgePoint Capital. And um, yeah, welcome, Will. How are you doing? Hey, hey. Yeah, always, always have fun. Uh, seeing you guys. Thanks for the invite. Uh, coffee opinions? How do you feel about coffee? Will? Uh, I love that coffee is zero calories, so black for sure. But it, I I love even more a well-made espresso. A lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, I can really geek out about uh, coffee, but uh, the way I make it is about as as simple as you can get. Just use uh, an AeroPress and a hand grinder. Classic. Beans and water. Beans and water. Beans and water, <laughs> indeed. So, uh, so Will, the last time we had you on, uh, I actually looked it up. It was uh, 20 episodes ago, uh, episode 270. Uh, we were asking about these huge valuations we were seeing that, that just, you know, seemed almost mind-boggling like like uh maybe didn't fit the market and uh and we were asking about potential market resets and corrections <laughs> so a little uh little hindsight here you know it se seems like uh, maybe we were onto something that episode yeah yeah it, uh, we we uh we definitely called the future a little bit for that one um you know what goes up must come down kind of dynamic right and it's interesting because um, we we actually did report on layoffs uh, a while. We we saw you know a little over a thousand uh, layoffs, and something like ninety five percent of those were one trust, which which had a huge uh, layoff and was responsible for most of those. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we didn't see anybody shut down. You know, we we saw some maybe some resets on how much their next raise is going to be or when their next raise is going to be, but. Ultimately, it didn't seem to be that disruptive for the security market. Do you agree? The layoffs, definitely not as disruptive. You know, like, for instance, I'm waiting for people to start saying, hey, all these layoffs happen and they're having a really tough time finding their next job. Um, I haven't gotten that data yet. And in fact, when I looked, you know, in just general news, uh, people are still talking about how uh, unemployment is still at record lows. And so um, we'll see if that ever happens in terms of the layoffs leading to higher unemployment, especially within security. Um, I think it will happen. It's just a matter of time kind of dynamic. But right now, I think the market's still looking good, especially for folks who are sort of mid-level and junior level. 
now the the VCs are definitely filling the the love with uh, with this kind of reorganization and and bringing back the market to reasonable uh, levels. The uh, ability for you guys to have uh, a lot of buying power uh, with the restructuring of that and getting a better deal on companies and actually it's probably better for the companies long term. Why why is that um, usually a better time for VCs to buy and why do companies often uh, get a better deal because of the lower valuation? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, you know, one thing that just generally tends to happen is venture does follow the public markets, especially when it's going up really quickly. So let's say, you know, tomorrow, the valuation is 90x revenue, uh, st- rounds being raised pretty soon right after that, we'll be talking about 90x revenue, and they'll be extrapolating how that 90x in the public markets should be interpreted in the private markets. When the markets are going down, though, it's actually very different. Um, most people like waiting for the markets to settle out a little bit before they start making that next big decision um, as um, uh, in venture. And so what's happening right now is, yes, I agree with you. There are better deals for the investors right now, mainly because, uh, yes, the valuations are down. But the other reason is because those companies, for whatever reason, have to raise money. Um, and um, and as a result, uh, there is just more reasonableness on both sides in terms of finding something that feels like a better valuation, especially for the VC. There are still some rounds, though, that are being announced now that were raised back in April, May, June timeframe, for example. And so back then, yes, there was more of a there's a little bit of a correction, but still some 2021-esque deals are happening. Uh, so we should be mindful of that. But I think by the end of this year, most of the announcements will all be uh, in the mindset of for whatever reason that company had to raise money. And um, either it was an investor who wanted to go along with them. Um, and was willing to do something more reasonable valuation-wise, but not a huge discount or maybe even a flat round. And then in some cases where um, everyone had to get comfortable and and accept a down round as well. Does that also help with the bringing about uh, a much clearer understanding and weeding out a lot of the kind of smoke and mirrors that many of these startups are, are bringing where they don't really have a fully well thought out product or the service and product that they're bringing, you know, is, is a lot of, uh, backend, uh, UX and UI again, smoke and mirrors so that they can get that valuation for that first seed round or maybe series series a, uh, is this helping kind of clear up some of that and provide true value to companies looking as well as the VCs and, and really identifying what they're getting from, uh, what's being presented. It is. It is definitely contributing to that getting fixed. And in fact, it's a little bit compounding as well, right? Because of the market uh, correction, uh, it's also impacting budgets a little bit uh, in terms of more customers are um, are being uh, more hesitant to pull the trigger on new companies. And so as a result, um, even the smoke and mirrors companies, uh, they're having an even hard ti- harder time generating revenue. And at the same time, VCs are looking for more data now, more validation that this product actually works and is important at the same time. So a lot of different things are coming together where I do think that it's making it harder for the smoke and mirror companies 
um, to exist and to have a, you know, as easy, have a, uh, they're having a tougher time. Is that part of the NDAs as well? Like the mergers and acquisitions piece of this is is a lot of this market uh, trending in the exact same way for the, for the M&As? It is. I mean, in general, most people don't want, like if you have an option to not do anything, whether it's funding or M&A in this market, you, you probably won't, right? I mean, there's so much uncertainty, so many people, um, uh, you know, they're sort of waiting for the new normal as a result. And so, uh, because of that, that's going to weigh down on um, on M and A side as well in terms of valuations. Because the companies that are selling now, for whatever reason, it's um, there's there's either a really really good reason that they need to sell now or want to sell now. Maybe it's acquirer driven, or there's a really really bad reason uh, where it's company driven and they need to sell now. So piggybacking on Tyler's question about uh, the smoke and mirror, so to speak. Uh, my question is around companies that have been promoting AI, artificial intelligence, and certainly there's been a lot of buzzwords around information security and security companies that are that have products that are looking at things, and they uh, a lot of times say that AI or artificial intelligence is behind that. And we've seen a bigger trend certainly recently around blockchain uh, as a, as an offshoot of crypto and, and Bitcoin. Uh, how do you see VCs really kind of cutting through that and identifying? Which ones are actually using an AI, or if there is secret sauce there that really is valuable that can can contribute to that bottom line for a VC as an investment? Yeah, it's, you know, the existing product is one where there's lots of different strategies on how to do it. Um, you can sort of diligence it yourself. You can uh, go deep into the technology. You can go deep in, in terms of looking at the demo. You can go deep in terms of hiring someone to go look at the architecture of the solution, for example. You can hire someone to go deep into looking at the, the talent on the engineering team. Um, I think the most common one and the one that's most repeatable is to look at how the customers are viewing the AI slash ML within a startup. Um, if the customers are saying, hey, this works, you know, the results are good. Uh, that's useful. It doesn't require a ton of tuning, um, and I trust it. That is a really good sign that um, what is going on there can be translated to other future customers. Um, I think one of the dynamics to startups that um, I think, and this happens in consumer um, as well, is that sometimes in the very, very early stages, they might not have true AI or true ML, or they might be using it, but at a smaller, um, not as not 100% leveraging it, for example. And so in consumer and in enterprise, there's this, uh, in, and in product management, there's this phrase of called like man behind the curtain, where they actually have people really doing the work. And so, yes, it is sort of AI because there are intelligent people in the background doing the work as well. I think that's something that uh, we should be mindful of as well. It's like we should accept that maybe for some scenarios, it makes sense to have this quote unquote AI ML, but it's more human assisted uh, AI ML. And then over time, tune it until it's one day 100% automated. And so one consumer example that a lot of us will know is um, a company Stitch Fix. Initially, they had designers picking out all the clothes for people and then they had AI doing only recommending a portion of it. 
And by the time they got to IPO on a large scale, as well, at some point, it was predominantly AI choosing the stitch fix boxes for every consumer. That type of dynamic is definitely happening and it should happen within cybersecurity as well. So in terms of you know, sussing out the market with VCs and startups where, you know, where the, the VCs get to be a little more choosy about the startups they invest in or, or even the larger companies they invest in. But in terms of the startups and it's shaking out a little bit for VCs, how does that translate to the market? Does that potentially discourage some startups if they don't think they have a strong enough product? How does that influence the market, impact the market in terms of the consumer? Do they not get to see so many options? And is any of that bad if, if there is this trickle-down effect? Yeah, yeah. So it is, uh, I think one of the fun things about when we look at economies, it is really an ecosystem, right? It requires a, a buyer and a seller. It requires multiple different people to be involved. And so, um, you know, the, the reality is that because investors are really uncomfortable right now in terms of making uh, big bets, for example. Though what that means is that entrepreneurs are very hesitant to raise money right now as well. And so both sides are sort of not doing a ton right now. Acquirers though um, are, are actually active. And I'm, we're seeing acquirers be very proactive right now in terms of diligence in companies, seeking out companies to acquire because uh, for them, um, when the market, uh, with the market correction, they have a very reasonable and healthy, uh, way of talking to a company that either has been doing really well or not doing so well and say, Hey, this is where the market valuation is now. Do you want to keep going for another three, five, 10 years? Or do you want to sell now and, you know, sort of, um, celebrate all the successes that you've had so far? So acquire, so that's where I, we'll see a decent amount of innovation starting to flow into is I do think that we'll start seeing it within big companies as well. Now, with regards to um, customers um, access to innovation, I also think at the same time, right, customers are also um, being a more conservative in terms of uh, purchasing uh, solutions as well. And so as a result, um, it is also making it a little bit more difficult for the startups and even the large companies to be able to predict what the end of the year will look like. Um, you know, we're, we just finished Q3. We still have a whole nother, uh, whole nother quarter to go. And right now I'm very optimistic about Q4. So we'll see. Somewhere there's a sales team saying, no, there's one day left. There's still one day. <laughs> I, w I was thinking that the old salesperson to me was like, wait, wait, they have till the end of the day tomorrow. Yeah, you, you just freak some people out, Will. So quick question, you know, again, on the market correction, um, is this, uh, are you seeing more diligence from VCs, uh, not necessarily due diligence, but expectation of some more solid revenue metrics? uh in earlier stages i mean generally like expecting market fit at series a is is probably not a thing you know you're going to be a little bit looser with with some of those metrics but maybe by series uh, uh series b you know and I, I guess another way to ask this question is 
are five million dollar ARR unicorns a thing of the past now? Definitely a thing of the past. The five million dollar unicorns, um, not ARR unicorns. Um, so it's really tough to say. Like I think I have to extrapolate, and the reason why I have to extrapolate is because right now very few investments are actually happening, and so as a result, it's really hard to say. Hey, what's going to ha- what's happening now when there isn't a lot of inv- investing? Um, but if we were to extrapolate based off of experience and um, and what was likely to happen. What's likely to happen is is that the um, the revenue targets will become more firm, uh, more set, more clear. So, for instance, Series A, something uh, you know around a million or some visibility to a million. Series B, something around three to five. Series C, something more than that. That kind of thing. Um, and in the past, you know, talking about the five million dollar AR unicorns, those were you know people applying series B metrics to series C rounds and series A metrics to series B rounds, because there's just so much confidence in that company hitting those next rounds metrics anyway. So why don't we just invest now? Like sort of thinking, think a little bit of like, it's like shift left, but investing kind of dynamic. Um, and so that's one going to be one dynamic. I think the 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 metrics that a company needs to hit per series will become clear um, or more firm. I think valuations will become a little bit more firm as well. And then finally, I think that um, uh, investors will have more opportunity to diligence uh, deals. Like in the past, uh, investors because there's so much competition had to move super super fast, um, and as a result, they had to prioritize how much diligence they could do. Um, now I think we'll have a little bit more time, so we'll still have to prioritize, but we'll get a lot more diligence done than before. What's are, the temperature of-, of the the market, especially among startup CEOs who were who launched their companies sort of during the boom period, who were expecting really high valuations? Are they remaining optimistic? Are they adjusting their their attitudes, ideas, expectations? Um, or, you know, has this just not changed at all? So the reality is, is that a lot of CEOs have, have had to do the layoffs, right? And I think even if the, they didn't do a layoff in their own company, they recognize that other companies have. Um, yeah. And so I do think that that is weighing on a lot of them in terms of what they think about the future. The, the key word right now is efficient growth. Um, before it was growth at all costs. Now it's efficient. I was going to say, does the formula now change for a lot of uh, how the VCs are looking at things? Do you have to restructure your entire formula to kind of identify those companies that are going to be a strategic investment and how long until that either payout or Series A, Series B? Does that formula end up changing or do just the numbers end up changing? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the I think primarily the numbers are changing. Um, you know, I don't think that right now people are thinking about, oh yeah, because the markets are better now, I'm gonna make five X while before I was underwriting to a three X, that kind of thing. Um, it's just so hard to predict the future uh, in terms of what the where the valuations will be when these companies move towards an exit. I think the the where the industry rests on is that when companies do really well. 
they do really, really well. Like it doesn't matter if it's a three X or a five X, uh, it's going to be something that will be materially, uh, shape, uh, um, the direction of the fund that that company is invested in. Um, and so that's sort of a little bit sort of the continuing mindset within venture, especially early stage. Um, I think if you move to later stage, those folks are much more aligned to what the public markets are doing. And so those folks are, are looking very, very closely at, uh, the valuation of each company in the public markets. They're like, oh, interesting. You know, Veronis's valuation hasn't dropped as much as Okta's valuation, for example. And so that sort of, um, that kind of uh, segmentation of the data of what's going on in the public markets is what the later stage investors are spending a lot of time doing. What are, what are some of the what's some of the advice that you can provide um, today's kind of startups or founders if they're looking to get you know their seed round or going into a Series A? Like, what is some of the advice from the VC side that you would offer them? Yeah, yeah. I think the I think the efficient growth theme is the best theme, and so anything you can do to sort of demonstrate. Uh, your ability to grow efficiently for a long period of time would be great. And so what that means is it's one where you're balancing both revenue and expenses. And, um, and, and, and so my advice is, is that um, I've seen some companies grow incredibly efficiently. Um, it doesn't always require costs to grow. And um, it doesn't always require spending to grow. Um, there are so many places where so many high ROI places to focus on. Um, you know, I think when we're spending more, what ha- what's happening is like, I'm, I'm Im- imagining a, like a, a curve, right. And, um, initial, the, all the initial things that you spend on are super duper efficient. Um, let's say you're getting 10 X ROI, the initial things that you spend on, like the low hanging fruit, for example, but because you're spending, you can go, you can start tapping into the middle hanging fruit. Um, and then when we were in the growth at all costs, it was like, I don't care about low hanging fruit. I want everything. <laughs> Give me all the fruit on that freaking tree ASAP, that kind of thing. Um, and so even though it was expensive and difficult to get the fruit on the very top, you still, you still went and got it because it was worth it because everyone wanted that fruit. And so as a result, I think there is value in saying, Hey, you know, maybe we should just focus on the highest ROI things that we can do. Uh, um, and that's going to drive the efficient growth that we're looking for. And that's going to um, give uh, the investors clarity in terms of their entrepreneur's ability to grow a business uh, at in all different sort of funding environments, whether it is an efficient growth market, whether it is a growth at all cost market, or potentially we go even further down where it's like, hey, I only care about cash flow. <laughs> and then, you know, seeing a company that's able to sort of build their business with a cash flow in mind, I think is will be the next sort of if the market continues to go downwards, will be the skill that investors are going to start looking for. Will, I just wanted to check uh if you still had a few more minutes. We still had a few more questions, but I know you might need to go. Oh. No, we can keep going. I'll get okay, cool. Um, yeah, so a quick question here, and I think Katie has another one, uh, are, are the investors, are, are you noticing, um, any big changes investor, it, who the investing community is, you know, I know we have a couple stories today about, uh, CrowdStrike and Sentinel one 
that that have raised their own funds, you know, their own strategic funds for for investing. And then, you know, something I've and I never know if it's just something a pattern I've just now caught on to, or if it's an actual new pattern, which was is why I have to ask you. But you know, I've noticed uh, syndicates uh, are, are very much a thing. Uh, I've seen a lot of people pulling together syndicates, you know, which, which seem to be groups of, I guess you could call them angel investors, uh, you know, that tend to be active in Series A or seed round or even pre-seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, I think it's it, it it's always fun because the corporate investors do move in and out of the market, um, and you know, in my mind, um, I'm I'm actually really enjoying seeing sort of the sentinel ones and the crowd strikes being more involved on the investing side um, because I do think there is a lot of opportunity right now uh, to be as an investor especially when you have the reputation that you you do have as a leader in your respective markets. Um, I think it's a really great way to expand the aperture of what the company does, um, as well as um, find win-win scenarios as well. Um, you know, I think part of the reason why there is more interest in talking about the corporate VCs is because, yeah, the financial VCs are super uh you know super hesitant right now to make investments and so that's created the room uh for new corporate ventures to 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 come into the come into play um yeah and the syndicates that's a that's a whole another fun topic you know where do you want to start on that front yeah i i guess part of what i was wondering is uh is this a new thing or just something i'd never noticed before that you know now i'm suddenly aware of you know it's kind of like um i don't know you learn something about a particular new car you know and and then that's that's all you see on the road just because your brain is not (laughs) trained to, to to look for that thing so you know part of it was just a sanity check like like are are you actually seeing some changes in the market here you know or syndicates uh, a fairly nascent thing, or have they been around for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the syndicate thing is, in terms of popularity, has definitely come up more. Uh, I would say probably starting, especially within cyber, I think probably starting three years ago. Um, the where the, Have there always been syndicates? There have been. Um, but in the past, there were more like founders investing in other founders kind of syndicates. Um, and they were sort of um, more uh, more um, more private uh, kind of things. Like you'd see the name of a syndicate and it would be something like Silicon Valley, blah, 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 blah. Um, in the past three years, I think that more folks have experimented with having customer of created syndicates um and then they've also experimented with marketing that those customer uh based syndicates and all the things that the customers can do for the companies that they invest in um and i think there's also been sort of uh uh syndicates um that have been sort of brought together whether they're investors or not by vcs as well uh, so, for instance, we have an advisory council at ForgePoint of uh, of uh, entrepreneurs, customers, and founders. Um, 
I think what's been the most experimentation so far, and that's why you're seeing a lot more now, is the marketing. Um, that part is new. And then the customers investing in the products that they could become customers of, that is decently new as well. So just a quick question about this idea of efficient growth. In the past few years, a lot of companies have tried to attract talent by talking about the hyper growth and how much opportunity there would be if a company were acquired, if it would IPO. So does this change from hyper growth to efficient growth change how companies have to recruit? Uh, does it change the type of talent they can attract? Yeah, so um, sometimes um, like it's always fun to like, for instance, I'm in Silicon Valley <laughs> coffee shop, for example, you know, you can sort of the conversations, um, there's a lot of similarity sometimes to the conversations. And, you know, when a market corrects, a very common conversation that you'll hear tech folks talk about is how their options are underwater. Um, and that naturally drives them to realize, oh my God, like, it's nice to have these options and I fought for them and whatever, but it's underwater. They're useless. They, they're worth nothing. And so then it starts getting to the mindset of, okay, well, now I want to join a company that's fundamentally uh, a, a stable business, a quality business that where those options uh, will not only never go underwater, but also increase in value as well. And so that's when the conversation around efficient growth will come up more. And then if the market keeps going downwards, there's more and more people, there's more layoffs, the unemployment rate is a lot higher, almost everyone's options is, is underwater, then that's when people are going to start thinking about, okay, well, let's not spend too much time thinking about options. <laughs> I spend more time making sure the company that's employing me has the cash and the long runway and a good environment and a lot of work and a lot of learnings I can do so that I can have a stable job that's paying me well. And I'll have a look at those options as well, but I view them as like uh, like a, uh, a nice bonus on top of my cash bonus kind of dynamic. So how will recruiting change? It will it will change on both sides. It's, it's, uh, it's already beginning to change on the talent side as well, because more and more talent, um, they either suspect that their options are underwater, and then even and then even worse, some of those some talents knows their options are underwater, and so now they're just trying to think, okay, how do I just what do I what do I do now? Do I um, do I decide to move on because I don't you know because I really value the value of these options? Do I decide to ask uh, for new options because my current options are underwater? Um, I think a lot of folks who don't know yet that their options are on water or suspect it, or even if they know, I think a lot of people are trying to decide how much the options care to them or how much they care about their options. So does that shift the balance perhaps to bigger companies, companies who've been around a while and put some startups at a disadvantage because that's one of the things that startups can leverage when, when they're trying to attract top talent, but they don't have the name, they don't have the reach. It's the opportunity, the opportunity. So when the market shifts and naturally employees are looking for more stability, more comfort, does that put startups at a disadvantage? It does. 
It does. Um, but I think the reality is startups have always or has recently been at a big disadvantage because there's been so much competition for, for talent that it's actually been a scenario, a common one, where you see a startup paying more than a big company for the same talent. Not all, and, and not not more just in terms of when you look at equity, but pay more in terms of cash when you compare it versus a big company. Um, and, you know, be, with the whole efficient growth dynamic that's changing, I think that luxury is no longer realistic or possible. I still remember when people were, were you know, were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm like one tick below uh, Google or I'm two ticks below Google, whatever you define those ticks to be, whether it's 10K, 30K, 60K. Um, but I'm, you know, one once one wrong below it. And then in the, you know, very aggressive market, growth at all cost market, people were regularly 30K more than, for instance, the um, than Google uh, or Facebook or Netflix. Um, and so to your point, I do think it will drive talent back to the big companies because startups will, again, you have to pay less than a, than a large company in terms of cash. And then the options will be very difficult to quantify as well in terms of saying how valuable it is. And so you see the stability, you see the certainty um, and uh, of uh, when you're working with a big company as well. And so as a result, I think we'll see a lot of A players start moving back to big, big companies as a result. And speaking of efficiency, we have a uh, some questions in the live chat here. A, a great one from an appropriately named listener, uh, Darwinism, uh, asking about the the strength of the dollar against some other foreign currencies at this point. Is that leading to uh, interest in deals overseas due to that, you know, kind of the the uh, uh, I guess the euro, the the British pound. You know, a lot of currencies are uh, a bit weak. Uh, compared to the dollar right now? You know, it's funny. Um, when the markets are doing well, people expand outside of Silicon Valley, for example, or wherever they're based. And when the markets are doing poorly, people usually start coming back to what they were used to do, what used to be doing before. And so I still remember a time when folks were very proud that they only invested in Silicon Valley. For example, never went outside of it, and then as a mar- as the competition heated up, that sort of forced everyone to start looking outside Silicon Valley, outside the big hubs, uh, we're looking internationally, and so uh, so the correction environment is actually uh, uh, is actually going the opposite effect. I think it's a really great point in terms of looking at the strong dollar versus other currencies. Um, I think where that's really being leveraged is more on the talent side. Um, I envision I can definitely see more startups working harder to hire talent internationally versus in the U.S., especially because it's going to take a little time for the salaries, which I you know mentioned before, were higher than Google or Facebook to go to the same level as Google, or Facebook to finally below the cost of Google and Facebook salary. And so one way to short circuit that would be to go international. And before we wrap here, I wanted to ask you uh, if you've learned anything interesting uh, as you've explored different uh, uh, internet options, both at home and uh, and with your mobile devices, trying trying to find the best internet as you travel around the world and in, in, in the U.S. I know you've been experimenting with that a lot. 
Yeah, yeah, of, of course. I love talking about that one. So, uh, uh, you know, I recently discovered the whole dual sim um, sort of joys, and I started exploring uh, doing bench testing uh, T-Mobile versus uh, AT&T, for example. I was recently in um, Tel Aviv for a week, so I was bench testing those two as well as local ISPs uh, or mobile internet providers. Um, I do think, uh, and this is actually a fresh thought that I'm still fre- um, uh, working on in my head, but I do think that um, we should start thinking about cellular networks as the way that we thought about home networks or corporate networks. Um I think the ability to create a private cellular network now has gotten so much easier than it has been in the past that I can sort of see the things that we used to do in terms of creating a perimeter around our enterprise networks happening on the cellular side. Um, And I can start seeing more of our corporate devices all each having a cellular connection and then us managing the network uh, or the data or the man- uh, or the management, the MDM side of each of those devices via the cellular connection instead of on the device itself. So, um, and I think that's going to move from like the super fancy, like oh, Amazon has does has their own you know private cellular network for their warehouses to you know a startup one day saying hey all 10 employees um are on this startup's own cellular network and um and using and via that um getting access to the different corporate um resources yeah i know i i absolutely love a lenovo x1 i have it did not have uh uh cellular antennas when I bought it, but I actually went onto Alibaba and found the kit that I needed to to add it retroactively to it. And I've been having a hard time finding a replacement. It's really hard to find a laptop uh, that'll take a SIM card, you know, that, that has 4G or 5G uh, capabilities. And uh, like typically, like you have to buy the most expensive model, like it has to have 64 gigs of RAM and, you know, the the high-res touchscreen and, and and all that. But I wish that was a more standard thing. It is in iPads. Uh, but uh, laptops, like a, a MacBook has never come with built-in uh, cellular technology, for example. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I would love to see that more devices. Yeah, I and I actually think, we'll, we'll see. This is, you know, sometimes you make these guesses about what the future will look like, and Sometimes you're like way too ahead of its time. And it's like, you're what you said won't happen until 10 years later. Uh, for example, I actually think, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful that we will start seeing it as standard um, in the next three years, maybe five years at the latest, but I think this is going to be a three to five year thing. So to your point, Adrian, I think we'll start seeing every device um, have cellular capabilities in the next three to five years. I, I don't want to ask uh, baristas for the for the Wi-Fi password anymore. I, I want that <laughs> to be fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Will, thank you so much for joining us uh, today in Enterprise Security Weekly. It's been a blast. Pleasure as always. Thank you.
All right, stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk securing the human element with James Norrie from CyberCon IQ.